It's surprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the focal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today is a very special show because I have runner and registered dietitian, registered registered sports dietitian as well, Megan Featherston. Megan is, first of all, an unbelievable runner. (laughs) She just broke three hours in the marathon and is really, really, you know, high level and dedicated when it comes to running. However, with that being said, that is not the reason she's on the show today. And while we may get to the point where we're on the show talking specifically about her running, This episode is about what she does as a profession, and that is talking about what to eat, how to eat, when to eat, and all the questions surrounding food, uh, supplementation, and just diet that so many of us had. And with that in mind, I did a call to action on Instagram. Actually, two. The first one was deleted by mistake, um, asking for questions to ask Megan for this show specifically. So I did do my own couple questions on here and several follow-ups. But this episode was primarily derived from your questions. And there were just so many, first of all. So thank you to everyone who submitted them. I really appreciate it. And with that being said, I do want to give a quick shout out not only to her for everything she's doing, but she also made it clear if you go onto her Instagram page as well, and you'll find the links for this in the show notes, that she will she'd be happy to, I should say, answer any questions that you may have regarding diet and all the topics that we talk about today. So again, you can hit up the show notes for her social media links. Also, I want to say Big, big announcement for me personally. So, um, bear with me. I'll probably mention this on other episodes as well, but I'm starting my own running coaching business. Yes. For the past year or so, I've been part of Lowell running. I uh, have been, you know, really appreciative of Ruben who started Lowell running for having me as part of their athlete coaching roster. And it was great. And I worked with a bunch of really high quality athletes and I'm going to continue coaching them as well, but I'm starting a new coaching service, the rambling runners. There is going to be a link uh, in the show notes and my Instagram page, or you can just go to the rambling It will be one of the tabs on there. And I can't wait to get started coaching more of you. You know, the past year or so, I've learned so much, uh, you know, in terms of being a running coach, it's been so great. You know, the athletes that I've worked with have done very, very well. And I'm just so excited to continue along this journey. You know, people always say, you know, if you want to find out what you want to do, figure out what you wanted to be when you were eight years old. And for me, it was really simple. I wanted to be a coach for at the time that meant basketball, you know, because that was the biggest sport in my life. But I knew that I loved coaching and I knew I wanted to do it. And after my entree into running coaching this past year, I'm just going to go full bore now and I cannot wait. So how it's going to work is just like so many of so many remote coaching services. It's going to be, um, using the V dot system, which is one that I use with my coach. And it's a, you know, a fabulous app that I like. Um, it's going to be $115 a month for coaching, which is a little less than you're going to find at most places. Um, but at the same time, it's also an investment. It's an investment in yourself and running. For me, I like having a coach because it basically keeps me on track and keeps me accountable. However, a lot of people like coaching for different reasons. Okay. You might not be the kind of person who's very type A. You don't need to be accountable. Sometimes you need someone to hold you back or, and this is a big one for me as well, is just delegating the thought processes behind your running to somebody else, right? Like I, I'd feel more than comfortable coaching myself, but sometimes, especially if you're talking about your own athletic performance, Sometimes it's just easy to get in our own heads. Also, if you're designing your own running format or your own running uh, scheme and calendar and all of that, it's easier to, you know, either overthink it or go day by day with it or shoot, if you wake up at four o'clock in the morning to rethink your original plan and having a coach can be so nice to kind of get that off your plate so you can focus on other things. So go to theramblingrunner.com. You can go on there and we can get started as soon as possible. So with all that being said, here is my conversation with Megan. Hello, Megan, and welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. 
I'll tell you what, so many people, me included, were really excited to have you on today. It got a tremendous response. We posted a couple times on Instagram asking people to submit questions in, you know, basically in anticipation of this podcast. I will say the Instagram story we put up it shows you how much of a... Uh, you know, naive person I am regards to some technology. I actually deleted all the questions after 24 hours. So we put up another one and we got a, you know, fantastic response. We got actually like two dozen questions and we're going to touch on some things as well. So first of all, to everyone who's listening, who sent in a question, thank you. We really appreciate it. Secondly, um, Megan, as you were taking a look at some of the questions before we get into it, I'm, I'm going to assume that these aren't exactly um, coming out of nowhere from your perspective. Oh, absolutely not. Nothing took me by by surprise. And I'm always thrilled with people's nutrition questions as a major nutrition nerd over here. You know, I love to hear that people have questions and they want to do things to really improve their performance from a nutrition standpoint. So it was exciting to see all those rolling in on that post. Yeah, exactly. And, and major nutrition nerd isn't your exact title. So let's go, <laughs> let's talk about, you know, your bona fides in regards to diet and nutrition. Absolutely. So I'm a registered dietitian. In order to become a registered dietitian, you have to have a four-year bachelor's degree, bachelor's of science degree in either nutrition or dietetics. So sometimes that word throws people, but can kind of just use it interchangeably as nutrition. Um, and then after that, you have to be accepted into an internship, which is typically a year long. Um, and that's where you learn everything you need to learn and get lots of hands-on experience so that you can sit for the um, exam so that you can become a registered dietitian. Got it. So you actually have an exam. And then I'm assuming that once you pass that, is there, you know, basically certain levels of, you know, things that you need to keep up with as you go? Or is it just a matter of once you're in, you're in and you can kind of tailor your own professional development to however you see fit? No, there's continuing education that you have to do to keep your license. And then you can also go on and get a master's. So I got a master's of science from Case Western Reserve University up here in Cleveland. Um, and then from there, after a few years experience, I chose to get certified in sports nutrition. So that's what the CSSD credential is, certified specialist in sports dietetics, um, which you have to work with athletes for 2000 hours and pass another exam. So <laughs> that's where that all comes from. Could you just count like working with yourself as working with athletes? Because you're one <laughs> heck of a runner in addition to being, um, you know, someone obviously well-versed in all things nutrition. <laughs> I wish, right? I'm certainly a guinea pig. I try everything out on myself before I try, tell other people to do it because I think that's really important to really understand that. Um, but no, I, I couldn't count my own hours, but thank you. <laughs> that, would, that would be nice for sure. Okay, so let's get into um, just as like a way to talk about you know, how you discuss these, you know, these kinds of topics and have these kinds of conversations with the athletes that you work with. What does like in a like a like a first phone call or meeting with one of your clients, what does that look like? And what sets of questions do you like to pose to them to kind of lay the groundwork for how you're going to work with them? Yeah, so we typically spend at least an hour together on our first discussion because, I mean, think about all the things that you need to know to really understand somebody's lifestyle, to be able to help them to, to change their nutrition. So I always lead with, you know, what are your goals of working with me? What are you looking to get out of this? I don't want to assume that you want to be faster. I don't want to assume, you know, body composition goals. That's always something I like to really drill down first. And then that can kind of help lead what types of questions I ask, right? So if we're really digging into energy expenditure from runs to make sure they're eating, enough, you know, or whether we always run through, you know, what do you typically eat? What foods do you avoid? You know, do you have any allergies? Just lots of, um, you know, basics, if you would. But then I always really try to get a grasp on their lifestyle too, right? What else is going on in your life? What's what's going on with work and sleep? And when do you train? And really understanding timing of where nutrition comes in. So really, there's nothing we don't talk about. You know, nothing is sacred in these discussions. We talk about pooping and, you know, everything, right? As runners, this is important stuff. Well, if you're going to talk about input, I guess you have to talk about output. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So let I, I met with the dietitian once, actually, Rachel Davis, who's been on this show before. Um, I shouldn't say I met with her. We had, we had a phone call, a private phone call, um, to kind of help me with my own uh, nutrition goals and hangups and things that I was working with. And one of the questions she asked me, and you, you know, talked about it just now is, you know, 
are we talking about, you know, basically altering the way you eat for weight loss or is it more about performance? And let's just talk about both sides of this. We can start with the weight loss side first and kind of talk about that generally moving forward because it's kind of um, a topic that's very much in uh, the zeitgeist of the running community at the moment. So when someone says, hey, I'm more about the weight loss side, what does that, um, what kind of like, what set of dominoes does that does that kind of uh, knock over for you in regards to how you want to work with them? Yeah. And I think you bring up a good point because there needs to be a focus, right? It's either focused more on weight loss or focused more on performance. They can't, they're competing goals, right? They can't both be up at the, up at the top. So, you know, if someone is more interested in weight loss, you know, that's a little bit of a different story, right? Um, We want to make sure that we're fueling well around those runs um, to make sure that you're strong for those runs, but we're going to be looking where we can cut, right? Where we can, you know, decrease how much you're, you're eating on a daily basis so that you can meet those goals. Whereas, you know, on the flip side, if we're talking about performance, we are doing everything we can to give your body what it needs when it needs it so that it has enough energy to be able to do all of the things that it needs to do. So in weight loss, obviously, we're trying to take away a little bit of that energy, whereas in performance, we're really trying to maximize that energy. Right. And I think because of everything we've heard um, from Mary Kane and a variety of other people recently about, you know, coaches and professionals approaching this topic, either with, you know, with some people just outright menace and other people just not quite understanding how to approach this, even if they had the best of intentions. Um, How do you approach this topic as somebody who's not only a professional, but, you know, this is very strongly tied into, you know, your work? Certainly. And, you know, you bring up a really good point here. You know, Mary Kane brought to the forefront that, you know, she was having, you know, disturbances in her menstrual cycle and she was injured constantly with bone injuries. Those are two huge red flags that someone is not eating enough. So, you know, what we look for is total energy availability. So that's the amount of food that we're eating throughout the day. And we can take away some of that energy for running. And then we look at how much energy is left. And when we look at that amount of energy that's left, if it's not enough to support you know, daily basic functions of, of living, that's where we start to see these menstrual, you know, dysfunctions and bone injuries and those types of things that our bodies, you know, screaming at us that we're not taking in enough energy. So when someone comes to me and they have a string of injuries and they're not getting their period and they want to lose weight, you know, those are red flags, right? That, you know, there's some things, things not going on right here, you know, that if we really want to support this, this female or male, right? So overall health, we need to make sure that they're eating enough to support these goals and their, their body physically too. Right. And you mentioned that those are two huge red flags. Uh, what are some other maybe um, less obvious red flags for people who maybe aren't sure whether or not they're eating appropriately um, for you know what they're doing, either because they feel like they're maybe bigger than they should be, or they're just not fueling themselves appropriately for the level of activity that they have, you know, things that maybe you can pick up on as a professional, but then someone as a layperson might, might miss certain things or feelings that they may be maybe experiencing. Mm-hmm. And there's two big ones that stand out to me when you say that. And the first one's fatigue, right? So we're all tired. We've all got a lot on our plates. But when someone is chronically complaining of, I'm just so tired, I'm just so tired, you know, from day to day, from workout to workout, and then also a delayed recovery. So when someone doesn't feel like they're recovering very quickly after their runs, or, you know, even maybe they're taking a day off, and they still don't feel like they're ready to hit that workout on that third day. Um, You know, those are two big things that nutrition can play a big role in. And a lot of times when we can change that, and we can get them feeling appropriately, that's one of the first things I hear, I feel so much stronger on my runs, I'm not nearly as tired, I have more energy. So those are kind of the first two things that pop up to me that make me think they might not be eating enough oh interesting because i i have experienced the feeling of you know the the fatigue slash energy conundrum and for me it was always and i'm sure i'm phrasing this wrong in my head or i shouldn't say phrasing framing this wrong in my head of like if i eat correctly kind of as an energy sapper i never until like i started eating fairly well very recently um found and found you know, high quality food to be an energy provider. You know what I mean? I just thought like my energy was at a baseline and all I could do was subtract from it. I never viewed it as something I could increase through diet. And isn't it fascinating when you have that like aha moment that, oh my gosh, I feel so much better when I'm eating well, you know, it really reinforces those, those behaviors and habits. 
Yeah, and I, I, I got to be honest, because of my own inability to eat correctly for sustained periods of time, I have never experienced the the feeling of, okay, diet can affect recovery. So can you dig into more of that just for my own personal sake? Because I, you know, I, I think I've, I've heard that, you know, kind of in passing before, but I haven't really gotten, you know, in-depth details about, you know, not only how proper food can really speed up the recovery process, but how it can also go the other way. Sure. And I think that's one of the questions that somebody put on on your post was more about recovery. And I, I think it was specifically, you know, if I'm running between meals, you know, how do I use food to recover? And, um, you know, when we, whether we're running really hard or whether we're into some other, you know, strength training that day or something like that, we're, we're really, you know, stressing our muscles, we're breaking them down, right? During exercise, we break our muscles down. So in order to build those back up, and to make them stronger, we have to have the substrates, the fuel there to really do that. So there's a window after we work out that, you know, the sooner we can eat after working out, the sooner we can give ourselves some good carbohydrates and enough protein, more fluid, antioxidants, all these types of things that we would get from a balanced meal, the sooner that we can, those muscles are going to recover and feel better and be stronger for that next workout. So if you're, you know, waiting two or three hours after a run, which I see frequently with my runners, um, you know, we're really missing that window to recover. Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. And is it, and I, I've heard people describe this window in various ways. I had Christy Ashwanden on the podcast, and she 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 likes to describe it as not a window but a barn door. That the that was like it was a, a bigger time gap than others. And I've seen other people who are also equally qualified and have done a lot of the research and you know even metadata that they've looked at in terms of like you know basically research on to on the research and things like that that view it more in like the thirty minute mode. Do you have a rule of thumb that you like to go by? That's a good a good statement. And I think that brings up nutrition is not black and white. Anyone who tells you that it's black and white is um, biased, right? So there's so much gray area and wiggle room between there. So there's research that supports both sides of your statement. And the thing that I like to look at practically with my athletes is when is the next workout going to happen? Right. So if you just ran your goal race and you, you know, like blew it out of the park, if you don't eat lunch for three hours, I don't care. Right. Because you're probably not working out for two weeks. But if you're, you know, really hitting a hard workout one day and the next day you're turning around and, you know, running a higher mileage day again, you know, that's where I want you eating within that 30 minutes. Right. So a lot of it's going to depend on what are we doing the next day? What does this athlete's, you know, full week of training look like? How aggressive do we need to be with that time frame? So, you know, 30 minutes is ideal, but up to honestly 90 minutes. Um, for so, you know, if you're getting home and you got a shower and get kids ready for work and then eat your breakfast, you know, after a run, as long as you're getting it within that, that 90 minute time frame, and you don't have a quick workout to turn around to recover for, that's probably okay as well. So you just mentioned that nutrition's not necessarily black and white. However, there are plenty of people, usually people who are trying to sell something who will tell you kind of the opposite. So what are some uh, questions, topics, or kind of pop culture-ish things that drive you crazy as a, as a registered professional? You know, the first thing that pops into my head is, I read this book, and that's where I'm just like, I, I have a hard time being like, oh man, what's coming next, right? Because there, like you said, there are. There's so many books out there, and somebody reads a book and, you know... Like you said, a lot of them are very black and white when it comes to the message that they're putting out there. And, um, you know, a lot of people feel as though they're an expert because they've read a book um, and it's um, can be difficult to then be like, well, let's take a step back and let's look at, you know, what's best for you. Um, so, yeah, the, the I read this book. That's what usually makes me cringe the most. <laughs> Got it. Got it. All right. And on the other side of the spectrum, what are some things that you feel are vitally important or, you know, best bets for people to, to incorporate into their lifestyle that may not get as much publicity or notoriety as you think they deserve? Good, solid, balanced nutrition. You know, I, I say this a lot when I give talks, you know, there is nothing sexy about that statement, right? And that's why dietitians aren't millionaires, because we're really trying to preach that, you know, if we can just eat 
as balanced as we can, as frequently as you can, and eat enough, right? That's a huge concept for runners is making sure that we're eating enough to fuel our performance and keep our body healthy, not only in this training cycle, but in the long run. Um, you know, that you're going to win every time if we're focusing on eating enough and eating balanced, um, you know, and timing that right throughout our day. Yeah, that is the whole eating enough thing is a great point. And it's something that, you know, I think for a lot of people, they don't quite have a great understanding of. And I, one of your, one of the athletes that you work with actually sent me a message and was like, Hey, I'm so excited that you're having her on. This is great. I'm such a big fan. She worked with me personally and, and he had such great things to say about you. And I said, well, what are some things specifically that she worked with you on that you felt like, you know, really, um, improved what you were doing? And his main thing was like, Hey, no doubt about it. Um, let me actually, no, I'm going to read it verbatim. I have it here on my little Instagram DM. He said, up everything. For example, breakfast time, you know, two eggs plus two egg whites, pieces of toast, banana, and all of that. Uh, the takeaway was you want to be too full to crave junk food. That was like his, <laughs> his number one topic. And then she helped plan many calories before a run and then went to eat those calories. And she had uh, rules for runs under an hour and over an hour, things like that. And great advice on calorie intake, so much more. And his big takeaway was he couldn't believe that he was being told to eat more. And it made all the difference in the world. I love to hear that. It's, I'm over here smiling. I know you guys can't all see that. But, you know, I think the the you won't be full or you won't be hungry enough to crave junk food. That's an issue that I see a lot with people is under fueling all day long, especially my morning runners, because, you know, sometimes you're not super hungry after a hard run. And then by nighttime, they're literally a Hoover vacuum in front of their, you know, cupboard eating everything they can get their hands on because their hunger has just gotten way too out of control. So it's shifting that, which is what he was saying, is eating enough at breakfast, fueling our body enough early on in the day that by the end of the day, when we're tired and our willpower is out the way and we're completely mindless about everything thing we're eating. We, we're satisfied by the food we've fed our body all day. So we don't have those issues. That's a great point. It's one that really hits home with me. I feel like I need to adopt that as well because I'm the early morning workout <laughs> type as well. And I've definitely seen that um, with my own, my own struggles. All right. So we're going to go no, no specific order here, but we did have a couple questions that I feel like were probably better off being coupled together. So with that being said, we're going to hit up the vegan stuff first. Um, we got Run Rebecca Run um, and Alicia Vis. These are, these are um, Instagram names. And then another one, Alessia Vis. I don't know. Alessia Vis. As you can tell, I can't quite pronounce it. We got Rebecca. Vegan recommendations for pre, during, and post-marathon. Vitamin recommendations to prevent deficiency. So ve the vegan stuff first, I guess. Yeah, so I've worked with a lot of vegan runners, um, which I think is awesome, right? Especially if you're newer to that, you're aware that maybe you're missing something. Um, so, I mean, just to put it out there, you can absolutely be a very successful runner on a vegan diet. I know plenty of people who do it and do it very, very well. Um, but you really do have to have a good understanding of your nutrition to make sure that you're getting everything that you need. Um, you know, and luckily, vegan diets are typically higher in carbohydrates than anything else. Um, so that's honestly great for runners. So as far as the, you know, before, during and after, you know, that, you know, shouldn't even be a huge, huge issue um, for someone that's eating a vegan diet, because there's lots of options for carbohydrates to make sure that we're fueling that well. Um, you know, that does bring up a good question as far as protein goes, right, is making sure that we're getting enough protein three times a day to maximally stimulate our muscles, um, make sure that we're hanging on to that muscle mass as we're training hard. So for some of my vegan runners, we really have worked on, you know, where am I going to get that? How much does that look like? What foods do I need to combine to get that amount of protein three times a day? Um, so so that can be one thing to just be paying a little bit more attention to. Certainly not that it can't be done. It just needs a little more of attention. Um, and then we know, you know, iron needs are higher for athletes. Um, so then if we're eating a vegan diet, we have to make sure that we're eating high iron foods. So any of you who follow me know I love lentils. So it is one of the highest you know, vegan foods in iron. So certainly we can, you know, incorporate things like lentils and beans um, to make sure that we're getting enough of that iron. But then I do always have people who are vegan or even vegetarian just watching their iron levels closely. As runners, we know that it's hard to maintain those. Um, so just being extra vigilant just to see if it starts to drop, you know, do something to help bring that back up. 
And then as a vegan, you're typically not getting enough B12 because that's found in primarily animal products. It is a little bit in, you know, some fermented foods and nutritional yeast and things like that. But, um, you know, most people aren't getting enough of that. So that would be something you'd want to supplement on a vegan diet. Um, and then this isn't, isn't just for vegans, but things like vitamin D, right? I know I live in Northeast Ohio. I think 80% of the population here is deficient in vitamin D. And I know there's other places that are the same way. So that could potentially be something to take a look at too. And how often do you recommend people, in this case, vegans, because as you mentioned, like it's really important um, to really make sure that you're on top of your iron levels. How often do you want them to test their iron? So it depends on their history. So if they have a history of it being low, I would say every four months if they're in, if they're training hard, right? If they have like, you know, two goal marathons a year and they're, you know, constantly in training cycles and they've had a history of low, I think it's smart to do it, you know, every four months. Um, other people, you know, once or twice a year is probably adequate. Um, but again, it just kind of goes back to their history of where, what their levels have done in the past. Right. And we say have your iron tested. It's it can be much more than that. You want to have your ferritin tested as well. And there's other things, other tests that, that are coupled alongside of the iron test. Okay. On, we got another vegan one here uh, from the name that I could not pronounce. So vegan recommendations on the best ways for kids to get calcium or foods for their growing bones and body. So the one really neat thing is this plant-based eating movement, which is not necessarily the same as vegan, right? But it is very popular that people are choosing more plant-based items these days. It means we have a lot more items out there to choose, right? So there's five, six, seven different types of, you know, non-dairy milks out now that are fortified with calcium and vitamin D. So whether you're choosing soy or oat milk or almond milk or whatever it is for your kids, you know, they're fortified with everything they need. They actually often have more calcium and vitamin D than cow's milk. Um, so I think that's always a good place to start. Same thing with yogurts. They have yogurts that are fortified with vitamin D and calcium that are plant-based now. Um, so I think it's a lot easier now to get some of these these things into our kids if we're choosing to, you know, have them eat plant-based as well. All right. Question from Well-Balanced Christine, um, which, hey, speaks right into what you were saying about your own dietary uh, recommendations. All right. If you're working out between meals, e.g. starting at, say, 9.30 a.m. and ending around 10.30 or 4 to 5 p.m., what are some ideas for what to eat before and after? You're not hungry enough to eat anything substantial before, but you don't want to eat anything substantial after, or you won't be able to eat lunch or dinner. I have people get in this predicament all the time, right? And I think if we just lay some some guidelines around there, it's easier to plan. Because ideally, we would use a meal as recovery. You know, that seems to be the best way to get some balanced nutrition in there. But for somebody that can't, you know, I always tell people, if you've had a balanced meal two to three hours before your run, you're probably going to be good, right? Unless you're hungry. If you're hungry, we certainly need to eat something. But, you know, if you're running at let's say 9.30 and you ate breakfast at 7, you're probably fine, right? And then you're done running by 10.30. If you eat lunch by 11.30, you're all right. So you're probably, you know, to kind of answer this question in a roundabout manner, you're probably doing all right putting a run in between meals because you're still, you know, within those windows of of eating a meal before and after it. But I don't know any runner out there that isn't a snacker, right? In order to meet our needs and control our training hunger, you know, there's usually snacks, thrown, you know, in between those meals as well. So if you do find yourself getting hungry between a run, you know, after a meal, but before a run, you know, try to stick to a more simple carbohydrate that's going to digest a little bit more quickly within 30 minutes before a run. Because we know that um, fat and protein slow down gastric emptying. So it keeps things in our stomach longer if we're eating more protein and fat. So we want to kind of minimize that if we're eating right before a run so that we don't, you know, feel overly full and sloshing and reflux and all that kind of stuff. So sticking to those simple carbohydrates, like, you know, a banana or a couple graham crackers or a handful of pretzels or something like that, that digests very quickly and gives us that fuel so that we can get out the door and get our run in. We got a couple questions regarding macronutrients in terms of what people should pay attention to. And I know, you know, when you talk about macronutrients, oftentimes you hear about the ratios in regards to, or not ratios, but the percent of kind of total 
total consumption in a day. Uh, so when you talk about micronutrients, macronutrients, what are some of the things that you like to discuss, if at all? Yeah. So, you know, in the background, I mentioned I'm a huge nutrition nerd. I'm calculating, you know, grams of, of our macronutrients in the background to make sure people are getting enough when I'm helping them figure out what they need. Um, I don't necessarily think people on the other end need to be counting that, right? Um, but I look more at you know, everyone's body size is different, right? So we have different nutrition needs based on our size and based on our output. So based on how many miles we're running a week. So those are the two things that I really take into account, you know, helping people make sure that they're getting what they need when they're training. Um, so with that being said, a lot of the recommendations for protein and carbohydrates and, and not necessarily fat, more carbohydrates and protein are based on grams per kilogram. Um, so, you know, that's a little bit different than the way, you know, the USDA's percentages of calories and things like that. When we're looking at, you know, good solid athletes nutrition, it's more based on, you know, grams per kilogram for that protein and carbohydrates. All right. One question that we got that I should have pumped in there after we talked about the vegan stuff um, was from For the Love of Running Happy, iron nutrition sources for female distance runners and does it matter when you eat them? So this isn't vegan specific, but touching on the iron topic that we that we discussed earlier. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting you said that because there's just a research study that came out just this week looking at timing of iron, whether it was a supplement or dietary iron. Um, and it was finding that the closer we consume it to our run, the better we absorb it. So it was saying like three to six hours after a run that we actually don't absorb it quite as well. So it was saying like, if you're a morning runner, make sure that you're either taking your iron supplement or eating your high iron foods at breakfast. So I think that's pretty fascinating and something that I want to look into a little bit more um, because, you know, especially for some females that have low iron, um, you know, it's, it's hard to maintain those, those levels for some people. So if there's little things we can do like timing wise of when we're getting that, that those iron sources that can be super helpful to maintain those levels. And what about coupling foods in a way that may be detrimental to their absorption? I think one that I've heard often, and it's not necessarily something that people would couple very often is um, like steak with coffee with like the, the deleterious effects of coffee on the iron um, absorption from the steak. Is there any other, um, again, that doesn't seem like one that would necessarily happen very often, <laughs> but are there other, any couplings that you would either persuade or dissuade people from um, going forward with? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, vitamin C helps with the absorption. So that's, you know, a no brainer to get, you know, a vitamin C rich food with, with your iron. Um, but then on the other side, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that competes or for absorption or kind of binds with it. So the coffee, it's the tannins in the coffee and, you know, there's some in tea also that bind with that and keep you from absorbing quite as much of it. But then the other thing is, um, calcium and magnesium will compete for absorption with iron. So you would never want to take your calcium supplement with your iron supplement. You know, you want to separate those things out. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's and that's the sort of thing that for me, it's like, oh, my goodness, when I start going down that rabbit hole, I'm like, all right, I'm done. I'm not going to think about this anymore because it starts getting so confusing when it gets to that point when you're like, all right, so I could even eat the right foods. But if I eat them in the wrong order, I'm going to be not as healthy. Like that's the sort of thing that I feel like maybe I'm just speaking for me, but I feel like probably other people feel this way too. And maybe you, even you do where you get this, these mode of like, Oh my goodness, like you could do so many things right. And still like not be optimizing some of this stuff to say nothing of like, even not approaching it with the, uh, the care that one may, uh, may, may want to. Right. And I think you could drive yourself crazy. Right. And I think that's my job as a dietitian to help you step back and be like, okay, what's the goal here? It's to increase our iron. You know, yes, are some of these, you know, if I take my iron supplement with Greek yogurt, is that going to compete for absorption? Yes. But you're still going to absorb some of that iron. Right. So, you know, I think it's, it's not, you know, we learn these things and sometimes we grasp onto them too tightly and we could drive ourselves bonkers. Right. Um, so I think it's just understanding we do the best that we can every day when it comes to this. And we're like I said, we're still going to absorb some of that iron. It just might not be as much as we would have without the Greek yogurt around. All right. So let's talk about supplementation. And we got a, we got a couple questions from Karen Howe, who's been on the podcast. Um, 
her question was specifically about BCAAs. There's a lot of buzz around them, and she wants to know if there's any benefit or is it more of a fad. And I guess I, you know, after we talk about that, we can also talk about just the the efficacy behind supplementation. Um, and obviously, not all supplements are the same, but just generally speaking, how you approach this topic. Mm-hmm. So you're right. Branched amino acid is is a you know, buzzword. There's lots of people supplementing it, lots of supplements being pushed with that. And, you know, the science behind it is, you know, branch chain amino acids can help us increase muscle mass. They can help decrease muscle soreness after workouts and help improve recovery. So that's, you know, kind of what the crux of their marketing scheme is on is helping with those types of things. Um, So yeah, I mean, they work, yes, but do we need to supplement them is kind of where I take that a step further. So, you know, there was this um, webinar that I listened to that, so I can't, I can't claim this visual, but I think it's a really strong visual for us all to kind of like put out there. So if you work out and you take a branch chain amino acid supplement right after that, that branch chain amino acid supplement has three of our essential amino acids in it. So it has valine, leucine, and isoleucine. So we know that leucine in particular is what stimulates our muscle protein synthesis. So we want to get a certain amount of that, like two to three grams in soon after a workout to really make sure that we're, you know, repairing those muscles, building those, that muscle mass, if that's the goal, um, within that time frame. So if you take a branch chain amino acid supplement by itself, it has that leucine in there to do these types of things, right? But so the visual is stack up, you know, eight of your kids' Legos, and that's the muscle mass that you're building from taking this branch chain amino acid supplement. But if we look at the research of getting those branch chain amino acids from real food, so from a meal that has all the other amino acids in there too, plus other macronutrients and you know other phytochemicals, we're stacking like 28 Lego blocks up, building that new muscle mass. So while the research is it's true, branch chain amino acids can help with these things, real food in the right proportions is actually going to do an even better job. So if you can structure a meal after a workout, you're going to be better off than buying one of these supplements. Right, which gets into the whole point of when you have these kinds of studies, which again, which is why it's important to rely on people like yourself, because we can so we can outsource some of this mental computing, is figuring out when they make these comparative statements, what are they comparing it to? Mm-hmm. So you have like the BCAAs, it's like, oh yeah, they might improve performance. They're comparing or, it to not eating. Yeah. Right, exactly. So it's like, yes, that's not necessarily surprising, unless of course someone's like on a um you know a fasting craze which again is another one of those things which is very much in vogue right now so when you have that topic come up with your clients um intermittent fasting and things like that what what is your take on that and when do you view it as potentially something um an athlete could consider versus when it's not necessarily right for for certain individuals right and i think we have to take a look at when is that person training, right? So with intermittent fasting, typically people are only eating for eight hours a day. So if their eating window is noon to 8 p.m. and they're running at 5 a.m., just like we were talking about with that recovery window, you know, they're going a very long time without eating and that's actually going to be detrimental to their performance. Um, You know, they did a couple studies on um, people who were fasting for cultural reasons and it was like a elite soccer team. And they found no shock that these guys that were fasting had decreased speed, decreased reactivity, you know, decreased stamina throughout the game, you know, which isn't super, super shocking. Right. Right. And I and I remember hearing uh, and reading specific interviews with Akeem Olajuwon and Sharif Abdul-Rahim back in the 90s. Um, you know, they, they are practicing Muslims and they, you know, um, Ramadan fell within the NBA season. And for them, they're like, you know what? It hasn't affected our play. You know, it, we, we've done really well. And it brings up your point because you're not allowed to eat during sunlight hours, during Ramadan, which for them wasn't an issue because it wasn't as much of an issue, I should say, because for them, their games were all played at night. So after a game, they could get all that recovery nutrition like you talked about. And it wouldn't be the same as if someone was, say, had like a, you know, another professional athlete you know, had like a two o'clock game and were a soccer player, whereas all of a sudden they weren't eating then till eight o'clock at night or something like that. Right. And I think, you know, this is a perfect example of why, again, it's not black and white science, you know, can an athlete 
do intermittent fasting and have success? Sure. But can they all? No. You know, so we really have to take a good look at that person's life and goals and lifestyle and figure out, you know, when somebody comes to me wanting to do something like this, is it the best option for you? And if you decide that it is, how do we do it and keep you as healthy as possible? All right. So let's talk about fueling long runs and marathons. You know, this is a topic, this is a question that gets got sent to me so many times, like more times than I could count. Um, and something that we all, you know, all of us runners think about because we all are aware that these goo packets that we, that we take with us, the vast majority of us, you know, use these things. We're all aware that it's basically just like, you know, sugar for all intents and purposes. We're just carrying around little packets of sugar. And while it can be helpful, I think we all kind of look at it with like a sideways glance, like, is this really what I should be using? Or is there, a, is there something better out there? So for these sorts of efforts, what are some of the things that you're telling your people? So, you know, when it comes to fueling for performance, that's a different element than fueling for health, right? So would we ever sit around and pop goos and, you know, chews and all these things all day long for fun? Probably not, right? But it's... What do you mean? That's how I'm getting stronger. I mean, (laughs) power bars and goos all day long. I mean, if it's working for you, like I said, (laughs) everybody's different. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, you know, I think it's it's important to realize that you know, there's different reasons we're doing different things with our nutrition. And if we're, if we're fueling for our best performance, we're going to be doing things differently than we would on a normal day. For a very personal example, I ate seven white bagels in the 24 hours before the Indianapolis marathon, plus other food, seven bagels, right? Would I ever sit down and eat seven bagels? No, but it was how, it was what met my goal, right? So, you know, to take a step back and, you know, what goal was I trying to meet, right? If we're going out and we're trying to perform in an an endurance event, like a marathon or even beyond, right? There's two different things we need to be doing with our carbohydrates. First off is we need to be stocking our glycogen stores in our muscles. So we can hang on to about 2000 calories of carbohydrates through glycogen stores in our muscles. Most people are not eating enough carbohydrates in their day-to-day lives to fully stock those. So in order to do that, we have to eat extra carbohydrates. And one of the best ways to do it is those simple white carbohydrates. Um, Because before a race, we don't necessarily want the volume and all the fiber that comes along with some of the more complex carbohydrates. We can certainly create glycogen from those complex carbohydrates, but a lot of times it's just too much volume for people to handle going into a race like that. Um, So, you know, we're looking at carbohydrates a little bit differently before a race, right? We're looking at trying to stock those glycogen stores to the best of our ability. Now, that's with all that fuel in there, we still probably don't have quite enough glycogen stores to carry us through those endurance events. So that's where these goos and chews and gels and all these types of things come into play. Because, you know, ideal at the end of of your marathon, what I want is I want you to be just about tapping out of your glycogen stores, but also have a steady source of, of exogenous carbohydrates. So coming in from, from, you know, the goos and the chews and those types of things. So it's, we're balancing the fuel we're using the entire marathon between those glycogen stores and the carbohydrates that we're taking in while we're running. And so hopefully, right, we have enough coming from those two places so that we finish and cross that finish line feeling as good as we possibly can. When we hit that wall, a lot of times that's because we've run out of carbohydrates from one or the other, but I should say both of those sources. Um, so the best carbohydrate for us to run off of when we're doing endurance exercise are those simple carbohydrates, which is sugar, right? Like you said, which, you know, typically you hear in the media all the time, don't eat so much sugar, right? But from an athletic standpoint, you know, that can be incredibly helpful. I mean, the research just doesn't refute that, you know, having adequate carbohydrates is how we are going to be able to finish as strong and as fast as possible in those races. Well, congrats to you because you ran the marathon in just under three hours, which was huge. So what was, what was your fueling plan during that race, knowing that you had basically turned yourself into a walking bagel before the race has started. <laughs> I sure did. And I don't want to see a bagel for a very long time again. <laughs> but <laughs> so I use um, the Honey Stinger Chews. I do better with the chews than the actual gels because I like that you can separate them out and don't have to take it all at once, right? You can take them a little bit more slowly over time, which I find helpful for myself. Um, so what I did is I packaged them in how many I needed to take per hour. So I had three little baggies of these chews um, and I shoved them down my sports bra and I pulled one out and made sure to keep me on track to make sure that I had 
taken what I needed to take every hour. And my goal was to try to get in 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour, um, which was more than I had taken in any other marathon. And it served me very well. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the, the one part with that, that I've, you know, one of my runners, you know, I, I'm a coach and she has struggled with um, just, you know, st- you know, basically GI issues and just upset stomach and you have this situation where I know a lot of runners and, and she's not the only one where you, you have this issue where like you have a situation where you just can't dial in the nutrition for these longer efforts without hurting your stomach or upsetting your stomach. So again, knowing that each person's different, you can't just like identify someone from some sort of anecdote and say, here's your problem. But what are some of the ways that you help people solve that problem um, in a systematic fashion? Most of the time, the problem is not practicing. So our body's not going to just all of a sudden accept fuel when we're running at a high intensity. We have to practice that and we have to practice it a lot. Like a lot of these elite runners that are trying to get in, you know, 90 grams of carbs an hour, which we didn't used to think was even possible for someone to tolerate that much. The way that they're able to do it is practicing, right? And practicing not only during our long runs of fueling, but also at higher intensities. So when you're doing those quality work or speed work during the week that you're, it's a little bit shorter, you're like, oh, it doesn't really need fuel. No, we need to fuel it because we need to get our body used to accepting that fuel um, and processing it and feeling good and not having, like you said, those stomach cramps and all those types of things that can come along with it. So, you know, I would say honestly, nine times out of 10, it's a practice issue. People aren't, aren't doing it enough to get their body used to it. But then on the other hand, some people do tolerate different gels or different, you know, modalities of glucose, um, better than others. So sometimes it is just a trial and error and trying a lot of different products until they find one that works, which can be a long drawn out process, which is why I like to work with people in the beginning of a training cycle to make sure that if we need to do these types of things, we have some time to play with that, to find what works best for them by race day. And you work with a lot of busy people. So what are some of your recommendations for meal prep and just working within a busy person's schedule? So I love to like find out what people are willing to do, right? Some people love to meal prep. Some people don't. So it's working within that framework and giving them ideas of meals that meet their busy schedule that they're willing to put together, right? Um, So I think whether that's, you know, batch cooking some things like brown rice and just even having some of the little elements together so that you can quickly throw together, you know, a bowl with roasted veggies and brown rice and some sort of protein. Um, The other thing that I work with a lot of busy people with is, you know, keep tuna packets in your drawer, right? So that at least you've got some protein. And if you run down and build a salad, you can throw that on it. And then, you know, where are we getting our carbs? So talking about putting the craisins on, you know, putting some, grabbing the crackers that are next to the salad, you know, and really teaching people when they get stuck in a situation where they haven't been able to meal prep, right? I don't want meal prep to be the crutch that everything falls apart when you don't have the time to do that. You need to have some skills of how can I build that balanced meal to help me meet my goals, um, regardless of the situation that unfolds in the morning, right? (laughs) Now, one thing that I've always gone back and forth with and you know, because I'm just like so many people, I feel like I am influenced so much by some of like the fad diet um, narratives out there. So like I've gone you know, in these cycles of like, all right, you know, cereal for breakfast is good. Oh, no, it's not good. Oh, it is good. Oh, no, maybe it's not good. And then going back and forth. Um, so can you just can you help me solve my pain? What should I think about cereal? I think I I don't know a runner that doesn't eat cereal, truthfully. I feel like everybody snacks on it, they eat it, you know. So the one thing is, is we want to balance it out, right? So if you're eating a bowl of cereal, are you getting enough protein? So, you know, whether it's a higher protein milk that they've, you know, got a few of those out now, or if you're eating eggs on the side, or you're eating some Greek yogurt on the side, or maybe you're making a yogurt parfait and putting your cereal into it, you know. Um, but it's just, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with cereal in and of itself. It's just how are we balancing that out to make sure we're getting everything we need. Got it. All right. We've touched on a lot of things. However, you are a wealth of knowledge. So are there any things that we haven't covered today that you feel like you, that often comes up in your conversations or that you want to get across? Oh my gosh. We could talk for hours, Matt. (laughs) 
<laughs> what don't I want people to know right now? I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I think we've kind of hit home on it a couple of times about, you know, the importance of making sure that you're eating enough. I'm so glad that, you know, things are coming to light about the importance of making sure that we're fueling our body right, regardless of what that means our body looks like, right? Um, and just making sure that we have that that energy available to our body to really be able to train and meet those goals. You know, that's what what it's really all about. So, you know, I think it's important that if you feel like you're sitting out there like, I don't know what I'm doing, you know, am I doing this right? You know, find yourself a sports dietitian. It doesn't have to be me. There's a ton of awesome sports dietitians out there, um, you know, that can can help you make sure that you're getting what you need. And I think, you know, so many of us are very eager to to go to run coaches to help us with our performance. I would love to see people just as committed and eager to, to work with a sports dietitian because it, um, you know, is a huge piece that a lot of people are missing when it comes to their performance and their goals. And when someone's considering working with a sports dietitian, what are some of the things that they should keep in mind when they're either doing their research or questions they should ask in the introduction process? I think it's important that whichever sports dietitian you reach out to is involved in the sport that you're interested in, right? I had um, some people reaching out to me about gymnastics and I'm like, you know, as much as I'd love to help, that's just not really my specialty, right? So it's it's trying to make sure that you match with you know, the expertise that that sports dietitian has. Um, there's some wonderful sports dietitians on Instagram that, you know, are into mountain climbing and out, you know, the packing meals and living in a tent for two weeks, you know, those are all different specialty areas. So I think it's just looking to make sure of that. And then also Instagram's cool in that way, right? That you can kind of put yourself out there and show a little bit about yourself. So somebody can kind of scroll through that and see like, do I resonate with them? You know, do I think I will work well with them? So, you know, kind of just do your homework and look to make sure that they can offer the services that they understand the sport that you're doing. Um, and that it just seems like a good personality fit too. Absolutely. All right. Someone wants to work with you. What's, how, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? You can send me an email. You can reach out to me on Instagram. I've got um, some stuff on my website. You can get to me that way. So so what is the website? It is uh, featherstonenutrition.com. Got it. All right. And I'll have the links for the socials in the show notes. Megan, thank you so much for coming on today. This was such a wealth of information. I'll make sure I re-listen to this one so I didn't miss anything the first time around. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thank you again, Megan, for hopping on this show. This was such a great conversation. Again, I might have Megan on again to talk about her running because she is so good at that. But this is a topic that so many of us runners struggle with daily, maybe even hourly. So it really is nice to talk to a true professional who's well-versed, not only in the best ways of going about this, but figuring out ways where we can all get better kind of step-by-step in the process. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you having, you know, you coming on the show. Also, if you didn't hear in the intro, I am excited to start my own running coaching business, The Rambling Runners. Go to theramblingrunner.com and sign up today. I can't wait to start working with you. Have a wonderful day and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.